From the great state of Ohio, Buckeye Firearms Association presents Keep and Bear Radio, fighting for Second Amendment rights, calling out media lies, and telling the gun grabbers to come and take it. Now, Keep and Bear Radio. When Hamas terrorists from the Gaza Strip poured into Israel to murder innocent men, women, and children, the military was caught unprepared. But Israeli citizens were caught unprepared as well. And the reason may surprise you. Because while many people think Israel has a well-armed population, the reality is strict gun control and a government that distrusts its own citizens when it comes to firearms. That's what we're going to talk about on this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. I'm Dean Reek, Executive Director of Buckeye Firearms Association, and I'm joined by Rob Morse, author of the Slow Facts blog and co-host of the Polite Society podcast. Hi, Rob. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome, Dean. It's great to be back. Thank you for inviting me. Rob, I feel like every time I talk to you, you're recovering from some nasty weather event down there on the Gulf, you know, hurricane, flood, comet, strike, whatever it might be. <laughs> uh, how are things in your corner of the world these days? They're about as good as they get. I am 40 miles from the Gulf of Mexico. I get to go out on my porch very comfortably in the mornings and evenings. Midday is still a little warm. Uh, I'm going to go for a walk when we're done. I'll have to put on shorts. What's life like in Ohio? Let me. Well, you know, as I've remarked on previous podcasts, I'm kind of the weather curmudgeon. I've, I'm more of a cold weather guy than a hot weather guy. Uh-oh. So, you know, even though we've had a pretty mild summer here in the Midwest, I'm actually glad fall is here. You know, fall means cooler weather. It means less yard work, yay. Uh, and it does mean thicker clothing, which makes it a lot easier to carry concealed and sneak snacks into movie theaters. Plus, <laughs> I mean, you know, just pockets and, and the bulk and all that. Plus, it means a bunch of fun holidays. What What are your thoughts on, on that, Rob? Hot weather guy, cold weather guy? What? Interesting. I'd never seen it before. Down here, they call it trunk or treat. Our population is spread out. We have a few areas that are densely populated. A lot of people live out on farms or what what used to be farms. So rather than wander remote areas in the dark, we collect at churches and kids go from the back of a car to the back of a car and say trick or treat. It's called trunk or treat because the goodies come out of the trunk of a car. Well, there's some places that do that. I think there's some local churches where people just show up with their cars. And I don't think they call it trunk or treat, but you know, it's a, it's a similar kind of thing. With that particular holiday, I'm still kind of old-fashioned. You know, I like, you know, people coming to the house. Or when I was a sure. kid, I liked going out, dressing up. And we would do something. I don't know if you ever heard of this, but we would get dried corn. Yeah. And we, and we would throw it at houses or throw it on their porch. Uh, you know, sitting here now, thinking back all these decades, I'm not sure what the point of that was. But, <laughs> but we got a big kick out of it. And you just call it, you know, you just go out corning houses. I don't know if any of our listeners have ever heard of that, but we would collect dried corn, 
and throw it on people's porches or on the roof or, or whatever. And we thought that was a real lark. If we do that down here, people are going to ask if you're baiting deer. <laughs> yeah, we were, I, we weren't really doing that. You weren't I, doing that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where it comes from. I don't know why we were doing it, but it was just, especially when you would throw it and you would, you know, hit like the awning, like the aluminum awning sure, on the porch, and and you know, make this loud noise. And we just got a kick out of that. So, but you know, there's Halloween, there's Christmas, there's New Year's, there's all this stuff going on. I do enjoy the holidays. Great. So, you know, that, that happens in the fall and the winter. And so this is just my favorite time of year. It, you know, it, what can I say? It's, it's warm enough to go outside. Uh, swimming's a little cool, but all right. We can, we can put on a jacket. Well, and the other thing, and I'm always telling my wife this because she always asks, you know, how, how do we dress? What's the temperature? And really, you know, if I'm going out and doing yard work or going out and doing anything, once your body starts moving, it feels 20 degrees warmer than it That's actually is. right. So 80 degrees might sound great until you start moving around. Until you, and, until you start doing some yard work. Then right. it's nasty. So if it's, you know, if it's 60 degrees and you start moving around, it's actually very comfortable. It was cold the other day, like 40s. Ooh. And I went out and I was putting down some mulch. I had to strip off a couple layers. I mean, it just, right. got, it just yeah. got too hot. Warm right up. So, Rob, let's, uh, let's turn to a serious topic. I know that, like all of us, you've been following the events in the Middle East, and I've seen some of your articles on the Slow Facts blog talking about the attack on Israeli civilians and your thoughts on civilian gun ownership and self-defense. So, as we're recording this, the attack happened about three weeks ago. And just so we're clear, you know, we're talking about, you know, the Hamas terrorists flooding out of the Gaza Strip and into Israel. The latest numbers I've seen are that they killed about 1,400 Israelis, yes. wounded somewhere around 5,400, took around 200 hostages. Right. And they terrorized and shot people in more than 20 Israeli towns and military bases and thousands at an all-night music festival. So, what was your what was your overall take on on this attack that just happened all of a sudden one day? Let me let me resize it to give you some perspective. The U.S. is about over thirty times larger than Israel, so it be it would be as if about sixty thousand U.S. citizens were killed and kidnapped. By the way, for perspective, that's twenty times the number who were killed at Pearl Harbor or on the attack on September 11th, 2001. It's a big deal. Where Israelis were armed and alert, they did a good job. Very few of them were. Oh, let's see. The, uh, how, how big is that? Uh, 60,000. That's as if Mexican drug gangs came across the Texas border and killed everybody in Galveston or Port Arthur. Big deal. Yes. Um, okay. So, again, we have this perception. And where we get it from is one of our relatives takes a picture of her niece, who's 19 years old. Every, there's forced service in the Israeli military while she's during that active period, if she's off base, off duty, she has to carry her firearm 
we get a picture, a friend shares it on social media, and we think that every 18-year-old is armed. Not true. In fact, like 2.5% of Israelis are armed. In the U.S., it's closer to a quarter. We have uh, 20 million people who go carrying a concealed firearm every day. Whoa. Different cultures, different reality. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people have the impression that, you know, they think about Israel, they think about Switzerland, they they have this impression that these are really well armed societies and they're very much like the US, that they have, you know, some kind of a second amendment, but really it's not true. In Israel, in fact, they they impose very strict gun control on their citizens. Yes. They, they specifically do not recognize any right to bear arms. Now I looked this up just because I'm I'm curious about other countries and you know what kind of gun control they have. In Israel, you actually need a license to own a gun. And I'm not talking about a license to carry, I mean just to own a gun. Right. And it, and it can take months to get that license. These license are licenses are very specific. So if you want to go hunting, you need to get a gun license for hunting. If you're a veterinarian and you use a firearm to, you know, euthanize animals, for example, you have to get a license specifically for that to get a particular kind of firearm. For self-defense, gun licenses are granted only to those who show us a need for a very special kind of security, you know, extra security above what an ordinary person would need. Typically, it's only for pistols. There are qualifications for age. You have to have a certain kind of training. There's background checks. There's a Hebrew language proficiency requirement because they want to make sure that you can read all the regulations and applications and all that. There are health requirements, physical and mental health requirements, and you have to do a personal interview. I mean, sit down with someone and they interview you to make sure that, you know, you're of of good character, you're the right kind of person. Rob, you can only own one gun at a time. In Israel. Let me let me go a little farther. If you had a particular military specialty, you could apply. The if you wanted a firearm in your home, okay, you can get a pistol. You can't carry it in public. Okay, there was an insane pushback against no, it wasn't insane. It was a, a drop of sanity when Tens of thousands of people contacted their representatives in uh, Israel, and all these members of the Knesset suddenly went, whoa, it looks like what? So the virtually the day after, it might have been too, um, the Israeli minister of national security said, yeah, we're going to change those rules a little bit. 100,000 Israelis applied for their permits. That's the equivalent of 3 million people in the U.S. That's a big deal. 3 million people is a very big city. Um, Unfortunately, the old requirement said you can have 50 rounds in your home. Now it says you can have 100. They still haven't had the political argument about how am I going to defend myself out on the street? How am I going to defend my neighbors out on the street? Israeli politicians have been attacked sometimes by Israelis. They don't trust their own citizens. So, you know, I've been, I've been reading about this because, again, I'm curious about the gun control. But I was right. curious about 
you know, I, I understand the arguments that are made here in the United States, but given where they exist in Israel yes. and given the political situation, I would, you know, my logical brain just thinks, well, for goodness sake, you must have citizens armed there. How could you not? And it's it's hard for us to comprehend here in the United States because we're not in a situation like that. So I read an article, and it was in the, the Times of Israel, and it was talking about, you know, our misconceptions about gun control over there. And the primary idea that this uh, author was trying to explain was, you know, in the U.S., we have a level of distrust toward our government. And that's one of the reasons that we have the Second Amendment. And we're, we're concerned about that because from the very beginning, we're, we've been concerned about government abuse, right? That's why we had the, re the revolution, because we were fighting against the overreach of, of government. But in Israel, citizens mostly trust their government. Yes. And they don't have a concern about the abuse of power uh, because their mindset is, you know, we're all Israelis. We're all in this together. We trust our government. And our threat is not internal. Our threat is external. And there's this quote from the Times of Israel, and I'm going to read this to you. Israelis want a well-armed society, and they expect the state to manage things in a way that only the right people are armed. In other words, Israelis are armed not against the state, but by the state against external threats like terror attacks, unquote. So now that makes sense to me on a certain level. I, I, at least I get the argument. However, Rob, I'm not sure I buy the argument that that's why there's gun control there because I have also read that the left in Israel is very much like the left in America. They right. trust the state, but they don't trust their own citizens. And you've talked about this in your articles. That's more in line with how we view gun control. So in this respect, the draconian gun, gun control in Israel is not much different from the U.S. In other words, leftists don't like guns in the hands of regular people. Um, leftists tend to have a big picture view. See, I've got a world, uh, a world encompassing theory that if I just do a few things, we'll all be safe. And if it doesn't work, it's your lives too bad on you. Cause I have my own security with, you know, in that sense, it, it is very similar to the U S because if you look at leftist politicians, they have their security patrols and you go, why do you need them? But I can't have them. Yeah, and and, um, and, Rob, and Rob, a lot of these stories, I mean, and the, the, you know, this was the argument that we want the government to protect us, anyone who's armed, we want them to be the right kind of people. But bottom line is when these terrorists attacked three weeks ago, the government wasn't there to protect right. the victims. And this is what happens when government doesn't trust its own citizens, because sometimes you have to take care of things on your own. And we, we've seen this on display in Israel, you know, we can have these theoretical discussions in the United States about not trusting our government, but for goodness sake, we're seeing it play out in Israel where literally there was an attack from an army of terrorists coming right into people's homes, and they mostly were defenseless. And because they had been rocketed for now decades, they had shelters. So they hid in the shelter. Sometimes they literally buried their kids in a corner of the shelter so they couldn't be found because given enough time, terrorists can beat down the door of your bomb shelter. 
It's a bomb shelter. It's not a vault. Let's let's talk about some of those stories. Now, just to help give perspective, you mentioned that we think of people as being armed. If you were armed to protect your school, you might very well have had to leave your weapon at school so you would not have it as you traveled to and from. In some cases, well, in almost every case, if you were a director of a security at a kibbutz, a kibbutz typically a uh, community, most often rural, almost always agricultural. Uh, yeah, and let's, uh, let's, Rob, let's just stop there for a minute because I, I yeah. actually got a little bit of an education on this whole idea of the kibbutz. You know, we hear, I've heard that in stories for years. I never really thought about it, and I did some research. What a kibbutz is, it's sort of a, like a commune, like a yes. modern commune, and it's a group of individuals. It could be a few hundred people who are living in their own community. They, they, they can have their own doctor, their own dentist. They grow their own food. And very often they provide for their own security. It's like a little self-sustaining village. They call Absolutely. it the, the, the kibbutz. And it's not all over Israel, but in some places they have these. That's what they are. These are these, it's not just a neighborhood. Very often it's a walled community where they, they pretty much take care of each other. It's family, it's friends. You have to be invited to join. You don't just move there. So it's a very particular kind of neighborhood. It is. Um, in one case, the security director for this kibbutz, fairly young woman, in her mid-20s, I believe, her grandmother was the security director previously. So it's often, oh, you're interested in that? Now, to this 20-year-old's credit, she'd spent extra time in the military, in the Israeli military. She, I think, did more than her two and out. Um, what, let, me, let me describe what happened here, and then let's talk about it, because it's both, you think it's a hero story, and it also grates on you if you know very much about armed defense from a U.S. perspective. So this young lady goes, those are explosions and rifle fire. I'm used to being rocketed. That sounds different. So she gets up and looks. Same thing you hear. Wait a minute. I'm hearing something outside my house. Did you, did you respond? You got some stimulus. Something unusual happened. She responded. Good. She goes see and listens. Yeah, that's real. Get some confirmation. It says she went door to door to get her security team. In a, in a community of 700, you and I would think with any sort of military perspective, you'd have some runners and you'd have radio. You might use cell phones. You'd have both uh, immediate and also secure communications. And you'd start more than one channel of communication so that if something happens, you're sure everyone's notified. So there's similarities and differences that we don't recognize. She organizes uh, several teams. They defend the kibbutz. She has a reserve team as well. They have to defend this kibbutz for five hours. And I think what happened, and I'm reading between the lines in the news article, they did not want to advance outside the fortifications of the kibbutz because now you're doing open field maneuvering. In the U.S., we would have reconnaissance positions. Hi, it's your job to be in this hole over here, and you're just telling us that we don't have to worry about anything over near you. 
Very valuable. Means I can dedicate resources in other directions. I think they were just within this compound. What I couldn't tell, by the way, was it walled because walls work both ways. Someone could be right on the other side and they're closer to you than you think. Was it was it chain link or was it uh, masonry, masonry block? After defending themselves for five hours, which is insane, an, an insane amount of time. Finally, the military showed up and cleared off the remaining attackers. These kibbutzim killed, I think, about 25 of the attackers, which is a, a significant number. And, and from what I've read, I don't think that they were prepared, the terrorists, I believe, were not really prepared for any kind of armed resistance. I mean, they had, they had maps. They had really specific plans. I saw an interview with some guys who, who did something very similar defending their kibbutz, and they said that on the maps, it had the locations of security cameras. And one of the guys said, you know, even I didn't know where all our security cameras were, but they had them on these maps. These things were planned out. They were planning to attack innocent people who couldn't fight back. And I think that it was a surprise when some of them did. They were, they had maps with schools where they deliberately wanted to target elementary schools to take children as hostages. Now, now there are, there are some other stories as well, right? This was about um, a young woman. I just mentioned that there was a group of men who did something very, very similar. Right. Uh, I, the kibbutz I saw like that was, uh, I'm going to try and pronounce it. For those of you that speak Hebrew, Go ahead. I deserve it. Um, Mephalsim. Um, and again, if you're warned, if you can get into position, now you have a, a defensive uh, security force set up. The classic, uh, anybody in the military will tell you, look, you want between six to eight to one numerical advantage if you're trying to take somebody who's oriented a defensive position. It's hard work, and frankly, the Palestinians didn't come with uh, the tools to do it, neither the men nor the equipment. So again, they held them off until others, typically military police, would effectively get behind the terrorists and wipe them out. Yeah, five hours, Rob, that is crazy because when I've always done my training, the training is always to expect you know, a few seconds, like most gunfights are over in two or three seconds. Or if someone comes into your house, it might be a couple minutes, but five hours. That's that's Even, that's really crazy. And, and these are citizens I've read who expected the army to show up w within minutes. And they had to hold out for hours. When you talk to our uh, U.S. servicemen who've been in the sandbox— a long firefight was 15 minutes. The, the issue was, and again, they can bring a lot of firepower to bear. Our guys were, you're shooting at me from over there? I'm going to either get you blown up or I'm going to go maneuver around and attack you from behind. These kibbutzim could defend their position, but they couldn't maneuver and then advance on an enemy. Therefore, it dragged out. And this rule of being able to have only 50 rounds. Rob, that's, that's one box. Can you imagine having like one box of 9 millimeter? Um, my carry gun, a Glock, 
15 rounds in the magazine. I carry an extra. That's another 15. That's 30. So let's just say that's approximately three magazines. Right. Can you imagine five hours with three magazines? Well, hopefully the kibbutzes, some of them had an armory. They had uh, troops in reserve. Can you imagine? You Okay, Dean, you've gone through some self-defense drills. When you were done, your heart was pounding. You were dry mouthed. Can you imagine having that level of adrenaline dump for hours on end? You'd, you'd tend to go blind. You'd be overwhelmed. You want to cycle guys through. Okay, you need to get off the line and give, go get something to drink, a lot to drink, and then of water, and then get back on the line. Yeah. So there are issues that they face that are outside even the experience of our military. And this idea of gun control, I want to go back to that, where they're maybe making some changes. Now, I'm kind of wondering if they're really learning a lesson. You had mentioned some of the changes they're making. I've read that they were trying to make it easier to get licenses just to to own firearms. And you said 100,000. I read 150,000 applications came in, uh, you know, so far compared to about 42 for the same time period last year. So, you know, again, if we're looking at proportional numbers, 150,000, that's huge for the number of people who are thinking, yeah, maybe we ought to be armed. Now, the changes they're making include things like the applications can be processed online. Right. And so to make them a little more efficient— so maybe days but, instead of months. But still, if you need self-defense, you're talking in a, talking about a week to get a permit. Yeah. So now let me let me put 150,000 in. Let me translate that into U.S. numbers. No, it's not an issue of metric. The proportional population in the United States, that's the population of Connecticut or Oklahoma. All of them suddenly said, give us a permit. We're talking about significant numbers. Yeah, and the gun ranges are having to add classes. They're they're going, right. you know, nuts trying to handle all of these students. Uh, they're now doing, I guess, you know, part of it is this interview, this personal interview. So they've said, well, we can do that interview over the phone instead of in person to help speed it up. Rob, I'm just wondering, is it like too little too late? That's a fascinating, certainly it is for 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 this last uh, attack. What I wonder is if the culture will change. When a politician proposes, yeah, you can have 100 rounds rather than 50, will that be enough? See, I, will the CI did something claim in the press cut any ice? Or will enough citizens say, no, what you did is insufficient? By the way, I want to carry it home. I want to do it all. I want to carry in public. I want to carry at work. Get out of my way. And, and what do you think? Do you think that they'll significantly change their stance? or well, because we're in the middle of a war, that has, in some sense, sucked the political oxygen out of the discourse. I don't know. I hope they will. Look, the Second Amendment, you're absolutely right, means something very different for me. As, a, as one of the few democracies in the Middle East— I want them to survive. I want them to have a robust uh, political economy and economy. I hope they will have that discussion. The question is when and of um, 
how will that the timing be manipulated by people for political gain? That's way farther inside Israeli politics than I can go. My prediction, and I hate to mm. say this, is that they will not significantly change their stance. You know, politics is all based on culture. It's yes. not, you don't start out with the legislation or your policy and then it trickles down. It, it, it sort of siphons up. So as they say, politics is downstream of culture. If their culture is that they don't trust individuals, that they trust the government and they want the government to have the majority of the real power, you know, like owning firearms, I think that's probably going to continue even after something like this. I, I think they'll probably make some minor changes and that will be it. Well, let's, let's, I'm going to go outside the box. This, you might shut me down here. I'd understand. We have seen Palestinians chant, kill the Jews for decades. You could go back and say, as long as there's been in Israel. Dean, I never thought I would see people stand up in the United States and say, we want to kill an entire religious group. And we saw that. I've seen a lot of American Jews go, oh, wow, we're not safe here. The government, in fact, is mealy-mouthed about violence. You know, words are violence if it's a conservative who says it, but it seems that a Palestinian can say kill the Jews, and that's not incitement. Um, so, and even in, in my area, which is really, uh, I, I don't think of this area as having a height. Jewish population. There was a run on gun stores again the week after that attack. I think a lot of American Jews and maybe a lot of Americans went, the world's not safe. I need to learn. Where I am, there was a run on guns and ammunition. Now, we're also finding out, you know, two or three boxes on the shelf might not be enough. Because that's two trips to the range. If you if something happens in the world, those that ammunition might not be there when you count on it. So, Rob, do you think that there's any effect that this might have in the United States? I mean, are we going to learn a lesson from this? Well, I, I mentioned that we are about buying firearms. Buying the gun is the trivially easy part. Now you need to take yourself to school and learn what you can and can't do with it. There's a road ahead of you. Um, millions of Americans just learned that, Dean. They just overcame some Hollywood myth and went, oh, wow, I'm not John Wick. And they're looking to their firearms instructors. They're looking to organizations like Buckeye. I think that's great. Will that change the way they vote? I'm not sure. Well, again, what strikes me about all of this is how we have all of these theoretical discussions in the United States because we're a, a very safe society. You know, despite what happens in a lot of big cities, most of us never end up in a situation where we actually have to draw a firearm or defend ourselves in that way. That This is, despite a lot of the stories they get overseas— this is a very safe place. We have a hard time conceiving of living like this, but we're sitting here in our safety watching people get attacked literally in their homes, shot, 
hung, burned alive, beheaded. And I think it, it for a lot of us, it just shows this is why we have the right. It, it, yeah. it may not be a routine occurrence for us, but it's one of those things like, well, we need to have the right just in case for those things that we can't foresee that might be down the road in our future. History shows us that bad things can and do happen. And I, I question whether we're going to learn a lesson from what's happening over there. I hope we would, but maybe this is a little cynical. I'm not sure we're going to learn a lesson any more than they will. To me, what's fascinating about that question, if you asked a lot of people in our major cities, will the police come when you call? The answer changed. Pre-COVID, it might have been yes. Pre-riots in the streets, before we were told to de-police, the answer might have been yes. Now, we see city councils cut back on the police. A lot of people go, no, the police aren't going to be there when I need them. Now we're finding out that, you know, if anything serious happens, even if they wanted to, the police can't get there in time. Well, this is part, this is, Rob, this is part of the, you know, theoretical versus the the reality. Uh, They've been showing a lot of videos. I guess a lot of those guys had body cams. Some of them were live streaming what they were doing. And we saw how it really went down. I think a lot of people get a vision in their mind about how these things happen. And it's based on movie, TVs, or just their own imagination. And they don't really process the idea that in real life, it's very much different. I mean, I saw some of these videos. There was one showing a terrorist uh, with a hoe, a garden hoe. And the guy had already been shot. He was hacking at this guy on the ground with a garden hoe. Uh, There there was a, uh, a video of a guy shooting a dog. I think it was a black lab. He was just coming out to say hello, basically, and got shot three times. There was a man executed through a screen door. He was inside his house. We saw video of these terrorists spraying bullets at cars on the highway, just anybody who, who drove by. Video of shooting into toilets, portable toilets, at that music festival, just in case someone yes. happened to be inside just going one after the other and, and shooting. That generally is not part of what people are imag- imagining. The reality and the brutality of it is different in real life than it is in movies or in our imagination. And that's where I think we ought to learn. But again, I'm, I'm afraid that a lot of people won't learn because they view this as something that happens far away and it can never be something that could happen to them. I've listened to a number of politicians recently who said we've had a generational change there are a generation of people who that the world owes them and if they don't get what they expect it's their right to take it when people have that mindset i'm just in the way i'm just a thing to be pushed out of the way so that they get what they want unfortunately that's right here right now i hope it's not next door Well, Rob, we've made it for two and a half centuries in this country. I hope maybe we can make it another two and a half centuries. We're going to have to see. It's sort of a day-by-day thing, isn't it? It is. So, um, well, Rob, you know, this is all a pretty gruesome topic, but I appreciate your writing on this, and um, I'm glad that you could share some of your wisdom 
on these serious matters. Rob, where can people read your articles on this topic and other topics? Well, you can find my written work at Slowfax blog, about 2,100 articles. That's often picked up at Clash Daily and at OpsLens. I host the Self-Defense Gun Stories podcast, and I'm a co-host on the Polite Society podcast. Well, Rob, thanks. Uh, Good work, and we'll talk to you again soon. My pleasure. That's all for this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. If you enjoyed the podcast, I urge you to subscribe. And please subscribe to the Buckeye Firearms Association newsletter at BuckeyeFirearms.org. If you'd like to become a member and support the work of BFA, go to joinbfa.org. Use the discount code PODCAST to get $10 off your membership. That's joinbfa.org. We'll see you next time on Keep and Bear Radio.